tonight we come to what is possibly one of the most inspirational sections of the entire New Testament. Because in the space of six verses, which contains 127 words, or at least 127 words in the NIV translation, we are confronted by some of the most striking statements about Jesus Christ. And in many ways we could spend all night on any one of the statements. And so I realise, and I want to say this right at the very start, that I'm not going to do justice to this text. And I'm going to leave some people frustrated that I didn't say enough about certain parts of this text. That some people are going to feel I didn't go into enough detail. But if I was to go into detail on these 127 words, we really would be here all evening. But for the next 50 minutes or so, uh, and don't worry, I'm not going to preach for 50 minutes. But for the next 50 minutes or so, I want to make much of Jesus. Uh, And so what I would love is that as you leave here this evening, in a sense, your head would be buzzing about Jesus absolutely buzzing and so in what I share and in something we'll look at and something we'll listen to and in all the songs that we will sing tonight the focus is Jesus and, and obviously I don't make an apology for that but I hope that we will leave here tonight having as we've already declared together magnified him so the text is 1 Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20 where every phrase seems to have been chosen with particular care and careful attention. Someone has said that every clause, and this is great, is pregnant of divine truth. I love that. And it's why countless pages have been written on this text and numerous sermons have been preached on it as well. Mullins says that it is the most comprehensive and exhaustive statement of Paul's estimate of Jesus Christ to be found anywhere in the epistles. And I would like us to read it together. So I'm going to invite you to stand for that. So please, could we all stand together? Now, what we're about to read, the style of it is such that some people have thought that there's almost a poetic style and therefore this was quite possibly a hymn that was sung by the early church as a way of affirming what they believed about Jesus Christ. So let's join in what has also been described as a burst of confessional praise. And what I would love you to do is really go for this, okay? Just go for it. So let's say, and if we use that version up there, then we'll not be all over the place, okay? So let's read together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's a real sense, if you have a Bible, uh, or there are some few Bibles, if you could turn to Colossians chapter 1, it would be great. But there's a real sense in which you just need to let those six verses, those 127 words, and those ideas and those concepts that we read together expand and stretch, and maybe even fry your mind a little. Because remember, Paul was writing into a context where some people were advocating this sort of Jesus plus mentality. It was Jesus and. And so what Paul felt the Colossians needed to know and needed to grasp was the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so based on these six verses, what I want to do or attempt to do is not so much preach, but try to guide us through a reflection looking at the centrality of Christ to the entire created order. Marilyn Manson's not someone you tend to hear referred to or quoted in church, but a few years ago he released a single entitled Personal Jesus. But what Paul, or who Paul, was wanting the early church to sing about was a cosmic Christ. It's been said that Western culture has so thoroughly domesticated Christ that it takes some imagination to see the cosmic Christ of Colossians. Tonight, I want us to imagine. I want us to just allow our minds to expand. And so the hymn starts sorry, there's that quote. The hymn starts with two staggering claims about him. It says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, you know I do like to get you involved, but can anybody tell me the difference between an image and an icon? You see, some people... Okay, don't... don't, Some people are going... Oh, right. Some people might say, and sorry to personalise this, but some people might say that Tim is the image of his dad. Okay? Uh, And by that, what we mean is that Tim resembles John. Sorry, Tim. Sorry, John. Okay? But that's not what Paul means or what we're to understand about Jesus. It's not that Jesus resembles God. The Greek word, as I understand it, that is is translated image is icon, and it means an exact representation. And so as Eugene Peterson captures it in the message, he says, we look at the sun and we see the God who can't be seen. The Apostle Paul, or John, writing that incredible opening chapter of his gospel states that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. So what was invisible became visible in Jesus. And so as Christians, we celebrate Jesus, and that's what I want us to do tonight. We esteem Jesus. We worship Jesus because it's through him, in fact, it's because of him, that we can come to know God. The invisible becomes visible. So Jesus is not just a prophet, not just a good man, not just a great teacher, not just a revolutionary, a historical figure, or an inspiring leader. And he is all of those things, but he is the exact reflection of God 
And that was a staggering claim whenever it was sung 2,000 years ago. And it is still a staggering claim today. But secondly then, Paul says that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now with this phrase, we've got to be incredibly careful. Because it does not mean that Jesus was the literal firstborn. Or that he was somehow the first created being. Because to jump to that conclusion, as many know, would be heresy. And again, if we go back to the first chapter of John, he helps us with this. Where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And if you look at verse 17 of Colossians 1, it spells this out in detail because it says, he is before all things. In other words, Jesus is the pre-existent one. Now that, in many ways, is a mystery. It's difficult, in fact probably impossible for us to get our heads round completely and therefore it is a matter of faith and either you accept that or you don't I realise that and I would find it difficult to put together a compelling argument for the pre-existence of Jesus this is simply although there's nothing simple about it it's simply a truth that we must and many of us have chosen to embrace by faith. And I realise it requires quite a bit of faith to accept the pre-existent Jesus, but if you think about it, what is the alternative? Because either you believe in a pre-existent Christ who created or who existed before the world came into being and he helped to create out of nothing, or else you believe in a pre-existent something else. It all had to start somewhere with something or someone Both perspectives, however you come at this, require faith. It's just a matter of where are you placing your faith. Incidentally, whenever the early church got up and running, there were some people who did think that Jesus was created by the Father, which did cause all sorts of controversy. And during the 4th century, there was one group who did promote this idea, and they coined the phrase, there once was when he was not. There once was when he was not. And that began to have major implications in the early church. And so as a result, Constantine arranged for a whole bunch of bishops to meet in Nicaea in 325 AD. And they came up with the first draft of what is known as the Nicene Creed, which is one of the most widely used and accepted brief statements of the Christian faith. And what I would actually like us to do just at this moment is to pause and again to stand together. I won't involve us as much as possible this evening. But to stand together and just to say that part of the Nicene Creed that deals with what already we've been beginning to unpack. And I realise, and I've got to say, I realise tonight is going to be a little bit heavier than maybe usual in a sense, but, but I hope that's okay. So let's stand together and say this. Say this as we mean it. We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Please take your seats. But this second statement also said he was the firstborn over all creation. And biblically, the firstborn in a family held a real place of honour. You will know that. 
And so they enjoyed the firstborn in the family, a really special relationship with their father. And this is one of the things that Paul is trying to get across to us and wants us to get hold of, that Jesus was the honoured son, the honoured son of Father God. So image and firstborn. But look at the next part of the hymn. Because Paul and the early church then consider the role that this cosmic Christ played in the creation of the universe. The original creation. And where they sing about Jesus as one, the agent. Have a look at verse 16 and 17. He's the agent of creation. So we finish the Nicene Creed by saying, through him all things were moved. But he's also the goal of creation, Paul says. And he is the sustainer of creation. Back to John chapter 1. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You see, the world that we live in is the result of the creative power of Christ. I love this quote from Derek Tidbull. And Derek Tidbull will be here in a few weeks to to share with us and to preach to us. But he says this. The smallest subatomic particle, the DNA helix, the great mountain ranges of the Himalayas, and the largest galaxies of stars that came into existence at his command... And through his agency. Jesus is the agent of creation. And secondly, he's the the goal of creation. So creation not only exists by him, but it exists for him. Look at the end of verse 16. All things have been created through him, but they're for him. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but the purpose of creation is Jesus. It's been created for him. In fact, apart from Jesus, it's all meaningless. It's all just pointless. And that does, in many ways, if you allow it, it sends your head spinning. Older evolutionary views promoted this idea that the universe was, in fact, just random and pointless. Newer evolutionary ideas suggest that there is purpose in design, but tend to imply that human life is the reason and the purpose of the universe. The Christian claim... The Christian belief is that Jesus Christ is the centre and the reason for its existence. So he's the agent. He's the goal created for him, Paul writes. And then it says he sustains creation. In him, all things hold together. So in other words, Jesus didn't just create and walk away. He is intimately, directly and constantly involved in the universe's continuing existence. Because if this wasn't the case, if Jesus didn't stay involved, our universe would just collapse in on itself. Let me read you something that I think captures this brilliantly. It is due to him that the stars remain in place and do not move about randomly and chaotically as if the universe were a gigantic bumper car ride at a cosmic funfair. It is due to him that planet Earth remains the right distance from the sun, neither burning to a crisp as it strays nearer, nor freezing to a wasteland as it strays further from its source of light and life. It is due to him that the regularities of day and night can be trusted. It's due to him that other, or otherwise it would be a very haphazard, unpredictable, random and unstable place to live. He is the source of the very air we breathe, And the very life we have. And therefore it's in light of verses like these from Colossians 1. And actually taking them seriously. That it means as Christians we cannot be or we shouldn't be indifferent about caring for our creation. And for our environment. We of all people 
should be the first to exercise care of it and exercise wise stewardship over it. Since we are the ones who have the earth's creator as the Lord of our lives. Environmental issues are, and I know someone was here not so long ago and spoke into this, but environmental issues are discipleship issues. They're not just for tree huggers and new agers and the Green Party. As I prepared for this, I came across this website really interesting. And on there is an evangelical declaration on the care of creation. And it's really worth reading because we follow the agent of creation, the goal of creation, the sustainer of creation. And therefore we must have, we're bound to have, we surely have a responsibility for his creation. Verse 18 then appears to shift direction. And the focus of the hymn then begins to talk about the church. But actually the spotlight is still on the cosmic Christ. Because Paul says he's the head. He is the beginning. And he is the firstborn of the church. And so if verses 16 and 17 deal with Christ and the original creation. These next few verses deal with Christ and the new creation. The church. That's us. And so first of all, he is our head. And there's two things that we need to grab hold of whenever we think of Jesus as our head. He talks about source and authority. And whenever we talk about the source of a river, we talk about its head. And in the same way, whenever we talk about the source of the church, we are talking about its head. And its head is Christ. So if the source and the authority of the original creation is Jesus, then he's also the source and the origin of the new creation which is the church. That's why the hymn refers to him as the beginning of the church. Because let's face it, without him we wouldn't be here. We'd never have come into existence as the church. The head is indispensable. In fact, without its head, someone has said the church is at best a lifeless corpse. He's the He's the head of the church. He's the beginning of the church. And the other aspect of headship is authority. He is in control. And so the church must always look to Jesus for direction. Part of the problem at Colossae was that the Christians in that context were listening to so many other voices of authority. So many other voices tell them how they should be living their lives and practice their faith. And so Paul, trying to get them back on track, said, listen... Christ is your head. Christ is your source of authority. And therefore obedience to him is essential. And that's something we as a local church must never forget. That it's not about any one of us. It's not about what direction we want to take this church in. It's about what direction does Christ as our head want to take us in. He is our source and he is our authority. Okay, you still with me? Thirdly, Paul says he's then the firstborn from among the dead. Do you know when Christ came back to life three days after his horrific death, he confirmed that this new creation, this church, was a new community of resurrection. And that was an incredible prospect for these first Christians, as well as it is for us, although I think we do tend to lose perspective in this. Christ is the model of resurrection, which we as Christians will one day experience. What he experienced, we will one day experience. Death, as we often say, is not the end. There is 
so much more. And I know we've said this before, that sometimes we can become so preoccupied with the here and now, so absorbed by the tangible and the physical and the seen world, and we get bogged down, and that's understandable, because we do live, in a sense, in this real world, as so many people refer to it, and therefore it's so hard to lift your eyes beyond the seen, to the unseen, to the eternal, to the invisible, to what lies ahead. And what Christ is about, he said, listen, he is the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn, but we will follow. Those of us who are in Christ will be part of that new community of resurrection. And then verse 18 finishes with the phrase, so that in everything, in absolutely everything, he might have the supremacy. Now I know that this is often applied to us in the sense of meaning that we must give every aspect of our lives over to Jesus. That's often how this verse is used. That he must reign supreme within our hearts. It's actually a lyric in one of the songs we sing. But actually this is not so much a phrase of exhortation as it is a statement of explanation. In other words, because of this cosmic Christ's role in the original creation, and his role in the new creation, he has supremacy. Fact. Now, of course, we should give our lives completely to him, but even if you and I do not choose to give our lives to him, Jesus is still supreme. Jesus is still central. He wants us to give him supremacy, but he has supremacy, whether we give it to him or not. And before we reflect on the final two verses, let me just, in a sense, summarize for those who are scribbling. He is the image of the invisible God. An exact representation who makes the invisible visible. He is the firstborn, the pre-existent, honored son of Father God. He's the agent of it's all made through him. He's the goal of creation, it's all made for him. He's the sustainer of creation, it's all held together by him. He's the head of the new creation. He's our source and our authority. He's the beginning of the new creation. Without him, none of us would be here this evening. And he is the firstborn of the new creation. In other words, he is our hope of resurrection. He is supreme. And as I said at the start, I, I know there's some people going, but there's, David, there's so much more with this cosmic Christ and the ultimate creation. You see, Jesus is the creator of the original earth. He's also the creator of this new community, that's us, the church. But then he is also the creator of the new heaven and the new earth. The hymn states that God, through Jesus, is reconciling to himself all things. See, the fall back in Genesis 3 didn't just impact human beings. All creation suffered. We do live in a beautiful world. We live in a breathtaking world. And yet, its fallenness is all too apparent. We see it in the savagery of raw nature, as seen in the animal kingdom. The absurdity of floods that destroy whole communities while others burn in forest fires. The extremes of bitter winters which kill jostling side by side with scorching temperatures which also claim their victims. The bad temperedness of the unannounced earthquake or the sudden eruption of the volcano. The bizarre sight 
of some of the world struggling with the problem of obesity, while much of it is condemned to poverty and famine. Do you know, no wonder Paul wrote to the Romans, the creation was subjected to frustration. We all know that the whole creation has been and continues to groan as in the pains of childbirth. But there is hope. Because the frustration and the labour pains are signs that new life is on its way. Jesus is reconciling to himself all things. Now just to be clear in this, to avoid any confusion, this verse does not commend some form of universalism. Please hear me on this. The idea that in the end everyone will be saved whether you believe in Jesus Christ as saviour or not, that's not, that's not what this is about. This verse is not so much about the salvation of men and women, but about the renewal and the restoration of creation. The new heaven, the new earth, a place new in quality and nature where righteousness dwells. And you'll notice from verse 20 that this is going to be a place of peace. And we're back to that word shalom, a place of no conflict, a place of, place of deep harmony. But you'll notice that the way it was achieved was anything but peaceful. It was via the violent death of Christ upon a cross. Because peace comes at a cost. You see, God's purpose is nothing less than a totally restored creation put back in harmony with him and all brought about by the cross. It's why I, I do love Eugene Peterson's uh, way translation or whatever of verse 20. All the broken and the dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animal and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. And the hymn ends there, and as I said at the beginning, I realise, and I've said throughout, that I know this is at one level quite heavy material, and there's so much more could have been said. But I hope that this evening as we leave here we, we have grasped something of the centrality of Christ to the entire created order. That your vision of a cosmic Christ in a sense has maybe been enlarged. He's created the original creation, the new creation, the ultimate creation is Christ. John Stott talking about the incomparable Jesus said this. Jesus Christ to us is not one of many spiritual leaders in the history of the world. He's not one of Hinduism's 330 million gods. He is not only one of the 40 prophets recognized in the Quran. He's not even Jesus the Great, as you might say of Napoleon or Alexander. To us, he is the only. He is simply Jesus. Nothing could be added to that. He's unique. He has no peers, no rivals no successors. Christ is supreme.